Greetings again, everyone. By now, you're about as tired of hearing Christmas carols in the shopping centers as I am. And very shortly, it will be over once again. Year after year, I've reflected on the fact that around the country, there are many school programs where little children play different parts and they dress up. Parents and grandparents go to school, to the auditorium, and they watch their children very happily playing the part of perhaps the elves or the reindeer or Santa Claus or some of the people out of the Bible, like the people around the manger scene, and they will chirp their little notes that they have recited or the words even out of the Bible. I remember when I was a boy in school, they did that. We had to play various parts, and just before we let out for the Christmas break, we also had to exchange gifts in the grade school. We would pass a hat around, everybody would write their name on it and fold it up and put it in there. We'd draw the names out of a hat, and everybody then would exchange a gift. So we learned, even in school, even though today you would think they would sue in the courts because of a, a very uh, powerful element out here who wants to get every last vestige of religion out of the schools, but they haven't gotten around to that quite yet. They do not want you to pray in school, and they do not even want a moment of silence in school because someone might pray, and that is against federal law. If you as a teacher down here in a grade school in Tyler were to say, Now, children, we're going to have a moment of silence so that you may pray to whichever god you worship, uh, he would be or she would be absolutely contravening federal law. But there's nothing wrong, of course, with having your kids cut out little pictures of Santa Claus and put the holly wreaths up and to decorate the tree in the classroom, which is, after all, a religious holiday. And that is not contrary to the law, and they do it continually. In the first chapter of the book of Luke is one of the places they recite continually, and it amazes me that no one's ever thought to wonder what in the world they're talking about and really what this means. In the first chapter of the book of Luke, we read about the announcement from Gabriel of the coming of the birth of Jesus Christ. We hear these on radio programs. You will see this on television. You will hear the softly intoning voice of a professional announcer saying, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Matter of fact, on Christmas Day, you're going to probably, if you do watch any television, be frustrated half to death because practically everything you see will be television programs of major church congregations, huge assemblies, First Baptist Church in Dallas or whatever, and they will be reading some of these verses. To a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. From this we see the rosary hour the Catholic Church has derived. And they put on a tape recording. Once in a while it would happen across this on KABC in Los Angeles, and for one full 30-minute segment, this same voice just went on and on and on. Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And you hear the people saying the same thing, and it just went over and over and over again, a responsive reading. It was called the Rosary Hour, and that's what the Catholics do when they go around the beads, and they say these words over and over and over again. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you shall conceive in your womb, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, obviously, all that is a lot of rhetoric, isn't it? It's kind of like a story out of Hansel und Gretel. It's kind of like the gingerbread house. It's like the three little pigs, or it's like some other fairy tale, because nobody knows what in the world it means. I don't think there is a teacher or a preacher in the United States of America who in the last 50 years has read that scripture and then proceeded to tell the congregation exactly what is the throne of David, where has it been since David sat on it, where is it today, and how can it be that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is going to someday sit on that throne, unless the throne is either in heaven 
or else the throne is still on this earth and somehow Christ who is in heaven and the throne which is on this earth are going to be reunited. Now you have a question here you need to answer. Either this is just gingerbread and pastry and rhetoric, either it's just a lot of falderall, it sounds spiritual, you don't understand, you may as well, you know, say something poetic in Latin, or else it is God's word and it really means exactly what it says. And if it means exactly what it says, then really what you're saying is that the Bible and the word of God and God's own truthfulness and his veracity stand or fall on whether or not this means exactly what it says. Is there a throne of David? If so, where is it? How are Christ and that throne, if it does still exist, going to be reunited? Now, the story really begins with Abraham, and I'll just briefly skim over some of this, because, you know, the Bible could be called one man's story, or it could be called one man's family. It begins clear back in the twelfth chapter of the book of Genesis, where God called Abram. And his name was changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. I'll just skim over some of these and refer to them. You will be getting them all when my book on Europe and America in Prophecy is out, but it'll be some weeks, of course, because I'm in the final stages of proofreading and typesetting and all of that, and it's a little bit of a laborious procedure, and it'll take quite a while to print it. It'll probably be somewhat about the same size as the Ten Commandments booklet, probably perfectly bound, perfect bound, in other words, or stitch or sewn, rather than just stapled together, because I think it's going to be a little bit uh, too thick to be the kind of a booklet that the others that we have here are. Chapter 12, verse 1, The Eternal had said unto Abram, Get thee out of your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now, a nation is a family of people grown great into a political entity called a nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Chapter 13. And in verse 14, the Eternal said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now your eyes, and look from the place where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. For all the land which you see, to you will I give it, and to your seed forever. Some people have argued, trying to contradict the so-called British Israel theory, and that the United States is Manasseh, and that Ephraim is Great Britain, and so on that he was just saying, to the horizon, meaning right there in the land of Palestine. We shall see as we go along, and of course the booklet makes that very, very clear, that you can study in hours in the privacy of your home. The next verse is hardly understandable, if it is to be so confining as to be approximately 7, 8, 12 miles to the horizon. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, now dust is pretty fine. How many grains of sand are there in the seashore at Panama City Beach? Uh, 600 and quadrillion, trillion, billion, quintuple million, or whatever, there's just no way to count. The dust of the earth, that is so many that it's really a metaphorical statement. It is not to be taken as meaning that it can be absolutely limited to the point of hundreds of billions, but it simply means vast populations numbering into the billions of human beings. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall your seed be numbered. A little further on, let's go to the 15th chapter, verse 4 and 5. Behold, the word of the Eternal came unto him, saying, This shall not be your heir. Talking here, of course, about Abram's first child, and who was not to uh, inherit what he had promised through Isaac and Jacob. But he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Now look toward heaven and tell the stars, count the stars winking up there in the skies, if you be able to number them. And he said, So, like that, up there, shall your seed be. In the seventeenth chapter, when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Eternal appeared unto Abram and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk thou before me, and be thou perfect. Be a good and decent man, be an honest man, be a caring man, a sharing man, be a godly man, be a hard-working and a thrifty man, be a man who obeys my laws and my way of life. Be perfect, be flawless, do not have ulterior motives, do not be a hypocrite, do not be an egocentric, vanity-filled person who will play politics with other people. Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth at once, we know what all of that means. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply you exceedingly. 
God made a covenant with Abram, Abram, and of course his name became Abraham, and later on we see in the 19th and the 22nd chapter the potential sacrifice of Isaac that he made the covenant absolutely unconditional, and that's why we're sitting here in a free land today. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and you shall be a father of many nations. That's what the name Abram, or Abraham now, as it was changed, meant. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram or Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations, plural, of thee. There are many people who argue, because there is one scripture in the book of Romans, possibly 1 Corinthians, I've got to go back and check that, it's in the booklet, where it says, In Isaac shall thy seed be called, and obviously there is also a shadowy inference of Christ, who is that one seed who was promised of the kingly line that was to come through the seed of Abraham. And so those who try to knock down the so-called British Israel theory, which is not a theory, try to insist that the seed which is implied to come down through history of Abraham was culminated in Christ. There is simply no way, as you read this, many nations, the very name of Abraham, meaning a father of many nations, nations, plural, will come of thee, kings, not just one, who was Christ, verse 6, but kings, plural, those are monarchs over nations, many of them, shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed, obviously plural seed, because the word seed is either singular or plural, after thee in their generations, not his, but their generations, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed, plural, in their generations, after thee, and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And in verse, the latter part of the next verse, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed after thee, in their generations. And this is all very heavily covered, as I said, in the booklet. Let's go to the 19th chapter very, very quickly. Well, I'll tell you, let's just skip over to the 22nd chapter, and I'll try to hurry along with some of this, because I want to get to a very interesting prophecy in a moment. In the 22nd chapter, we can read of the trial of Abraham involving the near loss of his son Isaac. And why it is that we're going to read in Romans 4 that he's called the father of the faithful. Finally, when he had passed that test, God said, verse 16, through the angel, By myself have I sworn, says the Eternal, for because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your seed shall the nations of the earth be blessed, because all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Later on, when Rebekah is being given a farewell, when she is about to go back into the land from which Abraham had sent his own son Isaac, we read of that in chapter 24, verse 60, her parents were led under inspiration of God to say a very strange thing. They blessed Rebekah and said unto her, You are our sister. Be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let your seed possess the gate of those which hate them, plural. As the booklet will explain, and as I've said time and time again, the British and the American people between them, especially down to the time of the Second World War, possessed every strategic land gate or passageway, every strategic and important sea lane or sea gate on the face of the entire earth. It is all detailed in the booklet. The British, with all their islands down in the uh, blocking, actually, access into the Gulf, the United States, where it is located, our islands in the Pacific, Britain, of course, sitting offshore Europe, the Scandinavian countries controlling the Kattegat and Skagerrak, the British with their islands of Malta and Cyprus in the Mediterranean, with Gibraltar, one of the strangest geological phenomena on the face of the earth, and I've been there and climbed all over it and done a radio program from atop that incredible rock that guards a very narrow entrance right between the, the uh, northern part of Africa into the Mediterranean Ocean, the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, the Cape of Good Hope, the Straits of Malacca, the Nicobar and Andaman Islands, Hong Kong, the Philippines in American hands, and so you, you look all around the world from Singapore and wherever you look, 
The major trade of nations today, as we sit here, goes not by air, but by sea, by ships. And the United States and Britain still to this day, although we're having trouble, and Britain is having trouble with Gibraltar through Spain, and we're having trouble and we're going to eventually give away Panama, but up until this recent era of world history, we have possessed the sea gates and the land gates like the Khyber Pass and so many other areas in Europe, some of the passes through some of the major mountain chains that have actually controlled where armies go and where trade and commerce flows, and so the United States and Great Britain have survived major world conflagrations, world wars, when we could have lost and been actually taken into slavery. Now, when we come down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, finally down into Egypt, the birth of the nation of Israel, they're coming out under Moses, going into the land under a system of judges, until finally they rejected Samuel and chose Saul. We come to a dynasty of kings after Saul was ousted from his office, and after God chose a man called David. And David was chosen by Almighty God because the people had already rejected God, and so he said, you're going to allow, be allowed to have a king to rule over you. But eventually it worked out the way Almighty God allowed it to, and we've read time and again the story of how the sons of Jesse were brought before Samuel, and each one of the big, tall, stalwart, good-looking young sons were rejected, until the youngest of all of them who was out keeping sheep, his name was David, was selected and anointed to become the king over all of Israel, eventually Judah and Israel together, and reign for a total of forty years. Now, when David's reign was about over, in Second Samuel 7, I want to turn to that and read it, he decided he wanted to build a temple to the glory of God. He was sitting in his house, the Eternal had given him rest round about from all of his enemies, chapter 7, verse 1 of Second Samuel, and the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I live here in this beautiful home of cedar. But the ark of God dwells within tapestries, or curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Eternal is with thee. Well, David wanted to build a temple. He wanted to build some great building for the glory of God, and in which the tabernacle, I should say the ark of the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant, with all those priceless things that were inside of it, the second, or the original, after the first ones had been broken, tables of the Ten Commandments were there. The original Torah, written by Moses, and perhaps edited by other people as we had come down through history. A stone jar in which samples of manna were contained. The very staff that Moses had held in his hand and thrown down at the feet of Pharaoh that had appeared as a serpent and eaten up the snakes that were there that Janus and Jambres had caused to appear through a demoniacal, satanic miracle from Satan the devil. That rod that had budded was also inside the lid of that tabernacle. David wanted to house that absolutely priceless national and spiritual treasure in a temple. Well, he was told he could not build it. God said this, Now therefore you shall say unto my servant David, verse 8, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you whithersoever you went, and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and made you a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in, that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. And he said in verse 12, And when your days be fulfilled, and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after thee, that was Solomon, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The throne of his kingdom is the symbol, the seat of authority of his reign. Not that he would endure forever, but the throne of that kingdom which began with David, anointed of Almighty God, Saul and his entire progeny were cut off and not allowed to continue. But David's seed was to continue right on down through history in perpetuity, forever. Let's turn to the 89th Psalm. And here it is, there is a very beautiful repetition of this in uh, what became known as the Davidic Covenant. Psalm 89.1, I will sing of the mercies of the eternal forever. With my mouth I will make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever, 
Your faithfulness shall you establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever, and build up your throne to all generations. Selah, which is like the conclusion of a verse. A lot of people wonder what in the world that means. Bullinger's Companion Bible has quite an interesting article on it, in the way in which it is used, its many usages, especially in the Psalms. And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Eternal, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in heaven can be compared unto the Eternal? Who among the sons of the Almighty, or the Mighty rather, can be likened unto the Eternal? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Speaking again of David, in verse 26, He shall cry, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. A type of Christ here, because Christ said the same words. Some Bibles will put the little letter P and put a circle around it, indicating a prophecy involving Christ. And David was a type of Christ. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, which some of them did, if they break my statutes, and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes, which he did, in causing kings to lose their lives, or be transported into captivity. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, God says. Did he ever break it? He said the throne is to be in perpetuity. Is it somewhere on the earth today? Our answer is either it is or there is no God. That's what you get down to. Either somewhere while we sit here today in this December of 1987, on this earth someplace, is a throne which is the same one so far as its, its uh, shall I say, symbolism, not, not a wooden chair or an ivory chair or a chair made of stone or metal or brass or anything else, but the place where progeny who are of that same line, who are of a royal family, a kingly line, back in history as far as you can trace them, their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents of a kingly line, and somewhere that throne exists, or this is a lie, and the Bible is false, and you can't trust it. And what are we doing here? Because what's religion all about? The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It comes down to that. Either God means what he says, my covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. Now we come down to what little kids say at Christmas time, when they quote Luke, the first chapter, a prophecy that obviously has to do with the birth of Christ, but finally the life of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and ultimately the reuniting of Christ with a throne that this Bible tells us is somewhere on this earth right now. Now, you know, it really does put in focus the fact that we are dealing not with an esoteric or an apocryphal, mysterious, religious thought. We're not dealing with a God who is allegedly a principle of good. We're not dealing with Satan who is the principle of evil, that we're dealing with this factual, practical world in which we live. The United States of America under President Reagan, Europe under its current leadership, Great Britain under Queen Elizabeth II, with a man waiting in the wings, her firstborn son, Prince Charles, who may in the next few years, either at her death, illness, or abdication, succeed her to the throne of Great Britain. I remember only vaguely as a boy of five the coronation of her father 
I don't remember except because I've read since that time the coronation ceremony that is actually repeated endlessly and has been in place for centuries, repeated by the Archbishop of Canterbury, in which the prayer says that they ask that blessings may descend upon, quote, thy people Israel. In the coronation prayer, putting the royal family on that throne. From time immemorial, from ancient Scotland, they have sat in a chair beneath which is a rock. That rock is about that thick and about this long. It has deeply embedded in both sides ancient iron handles that show great wear and great use because that rock was carried from place to place. When I first laid eyes on that stone, there was a sign right by it, and I had a camera in my hands, and I still have the pictures somewhere at home, and it said Jacob's Pillar, P-I-L-L-A-R, not pillow, but it is the very same stone apparently upon which he put some of his bedding and lay his head down when he saw a dream anciently in the ancient land of, of uh, down in Sinai somewhere, in a land of wandering and saw what is now called Jacob's Ladder, the angels of God ascending and descending, and the promise was reiterated to him that had been reiterated to Abraham and to Isaac before him, that Almighty God would never fail to keep his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are some interesting traditions about that stone, but let's just suffice it to say, isn't it fascinating that in the modern 20th century nuclear-armed space age, a queen on a throne of one of the superpowers, the great nations of this earth, is crowned sitting on a rock. That old coronation chair was apparently subjected to a lot of abuse back in the 16-1700s. And like a lot of people who want to carve their names on various public places or put graffiti on walls and besmirch it, there are little carvings all over it. But somehow it was rescued from those people over the centuries. And it's interesting because you can just barely make out. There are a few dates that go clear back to the 1600s where people with a penknife carved a date on that chair. And there's that darkened old wood and there's that stone that is called Jacob's Pillar Stone beneath it in a place specially prepared where you can see visibly the stone that is the coronation chair in Westminster Abbey in London, England today. I want you to turn to one of the strangest prophecies in all the Bible. It's found in Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. And we're going to put a few things together and see what this might possibly mean. Let me, let me not hesitate to say that this has nothing to do with your salvation. This is not church dogma. This is not something you must believe in order to be saved. I'm preaching now about history, about prophecy about some potentialities to help us understand and perhaps to get a little better concept of what the future may hold. In verse 15, it seems to change gears in the middle of the chapter, the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, and we see reference to a man who is mentioned in 2 Kings, the 18th chapter, and is mentioned also in another prophecy we're going to find, who is called Shebna. Now, if we wanted to turn over to that, and I won't do it, I'll simply refer to it over in 2 Kings, the 18th chapter, just at the time that the northern kingdom of Samaria has been taken captive, Shalmaneser comes down to Jerusalem with his general, who is named Rabshakeh, and he is shouting out to the people who come to the wall, who are Eliakim, who is the son of Hilkiah, who is called the great Lord Chamberlain, or the head of the house, the head of the king's household, and Shebna, who at that time is merely a scribe. Somehow, by the time this prophecy comes along, in the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, Shebna, and we don't see the record of this in the other books of the Bible, in Second Chronicles the Second Kings, but somehow it did occur. We simply have the fact that before this time, he was a scribe who was beneath Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now he has usurped Eliakim's position and has, as we're going to see, carved out a place for himself. If you go back and read 2 Kings, and let me refresh your memory on the 18th chapter. Prior to that time, the king of Judah, Hezekiah, had already been paying tribute to the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser. It actually shone in the treasure house and all the rest of it. But he began to think that maybe he could effect an alliance with Egypt. 
the Assyrian king learned of it, and he sent his general down there with a smaller group of people, but they weren't able to begin to sack and to siege the city at all because they were tied up in other battles elsewhere. And he kind of preached him a little sermon. He says, now don't delude yourself into thinking your God is going to spare you. You have the gods of all these other cities, and he mentioned a whole bunch of them, been able to save them from the hand of my great king Shalmaneser. Don't kid yourself, and so on. Said some very ugly things. You can read it in the Bible about the fact that they were going to begin eating their own excreta. And it's in Second Kings, the 18th chapter. Shebna and these people called out to them and said, Please, Rabshakeh, or however you would pronounce his name, that's the way it is emphasized in the Bible, Rabshakeh, ugly name, an Assyrian name. Please speak to us in the Syrian language, which we will understand, but the Jews on the wall don't understand that language. And they tried to become conciliatory. Well, of course, the general of the Assyrian army would not cooperate. So he simply made all of his threats and all of his boasts, and he left. So Hilkiah, Eliakim, I'm sorry, Hilkiah's son, and Shebna, and another man who was mentioned there, went in with their clothes rent before the king. The, the king rent his clothes, and eventually you see the story of how God heard his prayer, and Isaiah the prophet, who was alive at that time, told them what God's answer was, that God was going to smite the Assyrian army, which he did. In one night, 185,000 of them were killed. The remainder of them went roaring back to Assyria, and two of the sons out of three of them actually slew the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, in his own temple when he was praying to milk him his God. And another son ascended to the Assyrian throne. So the threat against Jerusalem was supernaturally prevented by intervention from God. As a result of that, at some time, a usurper here, Shebna, who previous to this time had merely been like a clerk, like a CPA, like a man who kept the records and was apparently over the money, handled the money, was a treasurer. But he had usurped the office of the Lord High Chamberlain, the head of the household, which was Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now notice this prophecy. Thus says the Lord Eternal of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasurer. Actually, some of the commentaries say that he was like the prefect of the palace, but it would be like the secretary of the treasury. Even unto Shebna, which is over the house. He was wearing two hats at this time. Previously, Eliakim had been over the house and say, What have you here? And whom have you here that you have hewed out you? You, you yourself have hewn thee out a sepulcher here. And the tabernacle, the, I'm sorry, the commentaries claim that that may be like the symbol of a secure place, like he had hewed out a niche for himself, and it's talking about a very, very high position, like a great temple, a facade in solid stone as he that hews him out a sepulcher on high, and graveth an habitation for himself in a rock. Talking about security, talking about tenure, about perpetual office, about perpetuity. Behold, the Eternal will carry you away with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover thee. Or, as the margin says, the Eternal who covered thee with an excellent covering and clothed thee gorgeously, shall surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. So here's someone who was a usurper, who was suddenly occupied in office, grabbed a crown or a hat and put it on his head, and is wearing that position when he doesn't belong there. He has appropriated a title to himself that was not his. And God says, He will surely violently turn and toss you like a ball into a large country. There shall you die. And there the chariots of your glory, someone with chariots of great glory, perhaps expensive, costly, beautiful, shall be the shame of the Eternal's house. And I will drive thee from thy station, and from your state shall he pull thee down. And it shall come to pass in that day, and that's an interesting phrase that we will see a few verses later, that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who had been dispossessed and replaced at this time, and I will clothe him with your robe, and strengthen him with your girdle, a symbol of office, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and now notice, we shift from a human title into something which obviously is much more than that. 
He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now, that is a spiritual title. And the key of the house of David. And what is the key to the house of David? But the covenant of David and the promise of Almighty God that was never going to be revoked, that would be in perpetuity to the seed of David. And is mentioned in Revelation 3 and verse 7 in the message to the church at Philadelphia that you have the key of the kingdom of David. Why? Would it be because God would reveal in the latter days exactly what was the meaning of the Davidic covenant and where is the throne of David and give understanding of biblical prophecy because of an understanding of God's promises to Abraham and of the identity of the American and British people and of the role that they are destined to play in world affairs in the future. The key of the house of David and I will lay upon his shoulder. Now, that again, just like in knighting a knight with a sword that was laid upon the shoulder, like the epaulets that are a symbol of office, laying it upon the shoulder is a symbol of ordination. In other words, a symbol of great authority and great responsibility. I will lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut. That is total, absolute power. That is a binding decision. This cannot mean just a human being. And he shall shut, and none shall open. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And that also is referred to in another verse over in the book of Ezra, where you can look into the commentaries, and it merely means a pin or a spike affixed in a very high place, which is a symbol of absolute perpetual office. Fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity from the vessels of cups, even to the vessels of flagons. So that's talking about the princes, all the children of the royal family, and it's talking about the royal treasury. Every one of the vessels of gold and so on that were in the royal treasury of that time. And like the British crown jewels you can go to see today. In that day, there's that phrase again, saith the eternal of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed, Shebna, and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the eternal has spoken it. Who was this usurper? The Bible doesn't say very much about him. The only place we can learn about him is Second Kings, the 18th chapter, here in this prophecy and in one other repetitive statement involving it, which is like a parallel passage of this one right here. We don't know how he moved Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, aside, how he took his uh, office, and how it was that he usurped his authority. But here it is very obviously talking about Jesus Christ. Once again, even the biblical translators in verse 23, when it says, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be a glorious throne to his father's house, put a little letter P with a circle around it, which you see in this particular Bible that I have, is always a symbol that it is a shadowy prophecy involving Christ. You cannot speak of a man as being the father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Christ said, Call no man father which is upon the earth. That's a title that belongs only to God. The key of the house of David to be laid upon his shoulder so that he opens and none shall shut can only be speaking of Christ, not of a human being. No man has that kind of power. That is absolute power that is incontrovertible. When it says, hanging all the glory of his father's house upon him, and that he will be fastened in a sure place forever, it's talking about Christ coming to inherit his throne, which is his right. Now, if Christ is going to come to inherit a throne, and if that throne is somewhere on this earth, then when Christ arrives, according to God's own word, which he says is absolutely as sure as the sun in the sky... There will be a human being sitting on that throne. Will that human being have usurped that throne, or will he have gained it honestly? I don't know the answer to that. What kind of a character is he going to be? It says here a little bit that he talks about hewing himself out a sepulcher as him that hews out a sepulcher on high and graves an habitation for himself in a rock. He is also a person who has fabulous chariots. I thought, clear back in 1956, that this prophecy meant 
at that time very young, I think he may have been 12, Prince Charles, I have never changed my mind. I still think that it may well mean Prince Charles of Great Britain. Now, let me show you something else that is absolutely cogent to this and tends to reconfirm it. Chapter 28 is talking about Ephraim, and as you know, the whole book of Hosea is a prophecy towards Ephraim, showing the kind of decadence and the, the kind of ungodliness and so on that Great Britain has drifted into, and where actually they've gone down the drain morally even further and previous to the moral toboggan slide on which the United States has been riding for the last several decades. And I won't go into all of that. Uh, full frontal nudity on regular TV without any, any other constraints on children, any of that type of thing. Absolute alcoholism, drunkenness, and so on. I mean, the British people, so far as their uh, national character, have gone down, down, down. And I'm reminded of a prophecy in Isaiah 3 and verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. I have felt maybe at some point in time the United States may have a woman president. But already... There is a female prime minister in Norway, and there is a female prime minister in Great Britain. Now, that's not anti-woman, and it's not anti-women's lib, and it's not anti-female. It is a prophecy of Almighty God that says, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. And it was contrary to God's laws and to God's desire. Chapter 28, verse 1 of the book of Isaiah. Woe to the crown of pride! to the drunkards of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim, I believe, it is absolutely proved, and I think the book that is going to substantiate that, is Great Britain, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, and that has been true ever since the 1940s and 50s. Britain has been a fading flower. She went way up into the status of gigantic empire, and she has gradually been going down, 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 until she's lost possessions all over the earth, has lost power, lost pride, and the sun has already set on the former British Empire. They are down to the level of second, even third-rate power today, and they are destined to drift further down. Whose glorious beauty is as a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat ballads of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Eternal has a mighty and strong one. This is referring again to Assyria that is mentioned in the tenth chapter of Isaiah which as a tempest of hail and destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down. The drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden under feet, and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be as a fading flower, and as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looks upon it sees, while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up, or it dries up. Notice now in verse 5 how this ties into chapter 22, verse 15, to the end of that chapter, and the prophecy we read about Shebna. In that day, there's that phrase again, that always tends to mean in biblical prophecy the time of God's intervention, the time of the last plagues, and of the arrival of Christ. Shall the eternal of hosts be for a crown of glory, the symbol of kingly office, and a diadem of beauty, and the diadem again is a symbol of kingly office, under the residue of the people, and for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle of the gate, but they also have erred through wine, and the Hebrew word is yayin, and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision and stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. This is dealing with the corruption of government now and in the future of Great Britain. There's a very interesting prophecy over in the book of Ezekiel, and I want to turn to that in the 21st chapter at this time, that seems to pull all this together and is impossible to misunderstand. Ezekiel 21, beginning to read in verse 25, And thou, profane, wicked prince of Israel, a royal prince, of that progeny which was never to cease from the kingly line that would follow along after David, thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end, 
people, then he reigns, he rules at a time when iniquity shall have an end. In other words, at the time just before the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth, when finally sin and iniquity is going to be abolished from the earth. Thus says the Lord God, Christ is not coming to an empty throne. He's coming to inherit the throne of his father David, of which it said there would never fail of the seed of Israel to sit upon that throne. Therefore, he's coming to replace someone on that throne. Interesting, isn't it, how much Prince Charles and Lady Di have been in the news in the last six months. The British newspapers are tearing them to bits. Major scurrilous magazines in the United States are tearing them to bits. They're talking about Fergie and Die, and they're bombing around with a jet set down in southern France, and they're going around the world and doing this and that. He goes to India, and she goes to the Bahamas, or whatever. And never the twain shall meet. And when they appear in public, they're obviously unhappy. And the cat is out of the bag. Their marriage is on the rocks. Now, what that's going to do, and whether or not he's going to divorce her, and all that is going to happen in the British uh, climate over there of their king-watching and their uh, fascination with the royal family, the very great contempt and hatred on the part of some for the royal family, and the very great love on the part of others for the royal family, I really cannot say. But you've got to agree that in the last very few weeks you have probably uh, been unable to escape uh, things on your evening news about Prince Charles and Lady Diana and the fact that their marriage is on the rocks. So it says, remove the diadem and take off the crown, this shall not be the same. It's not going to stay like this. Exalt him that is low. Christ said, I am meek and lowly. And Christ is to be exalted. And abase him that is high. Remember the prophecy about Shebna. What are you doing up high, up here with a sepulcher in a rock? I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it shall be no more overturned, is what is implied, obviously, because it doesn't mean it's going to cease to exist but no more overturned until he come whose right it is. Out of the first chapter of Luke, he shall inherit the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end, and I will give it to him. Now, in the booklet that my father wrote many years ago, quoting from, from Alan in his book, Judas Scepter and Joseph's Birthright, the various overturnings of that throne are all very carefully laid out of how it was the responsibility of Jeremiah with Baruch his scribe to take the daughters of the king, Hezekiah. They went into Egypt, and finally they sailed in a ship and went, and we find only in ancient Irish history and some of the annals of Ireland little bits and pieces of information that we do know some of the earliest inhabitants of those islands were called the Tawatha de Danan, D-A-N-A-A-N, which merely means the tribe of Dan. We also know that Denmark is actually spelled Danmark. We know that also originally it was called the land of the Jutes, and the Jutes were nothing more than the Jews, 200,000 of whom had actually been taken captive out of the northern part of Judah way before Judah itself went captive into Babylon and were taken even at the time or before the time of the fall of Samaria and began to wander along the major rivers that led from the heartland of Europe into the Black Sea, where they were taken up near the Crimean Peninsula. One of the major kings of Israel who dealt with the Assyrian Empire was Omri, O-M-R-I, but in the Hebrew it was pronounced with the O, not the way we do in the English with a soft O, but with a K or an H sound. And so he became known among the Assyrians as Humri, Humri or Kumri, from which came Gimbri, Kimiri, and Kimroi in the Greek tongue. The Crimean Peninsula of Crimea is nothing more than a representation of that ancient name. Remember that Dan dwelt in ships, and that the half-tribe of Dan was both seafaring and land-dwelling, and that it was the custom of Dan, who is the progenitor of the Danites, to rename areas that their people conquered after the name of their forebear, who was Dan. One of the first examples of that is found when they took over Laish and renamed it Dan, and we find it in history in the Bible as from Dan to Beersheba, from the northern part to the southern part of the land of Palestine. And as you come through the rivers, and I won't go through a lot of that because it would take a lot of time, and it's in the book, and the book is going to be quite thorough on that subject. You come to the river Danuba, which merely in the Latin means the river of Dan, 
the river Yudan, the river Dniester and Dnieper, and you trace all the way up to Jute land, which is the land or the peninsula of the Jutes or the Jews, which then became known as Danmark and still is called Danmark, where the Danites dwell today. There's a great deal more in the book which traces the history of the Goths. Who were they? The Goths, who were merely the people who worshipped the bull, and that's all it meant. They are a, a mysterious people that allegedly suddenly disappeared, and yet there were millions of them in every nation of Europe. And you can read all of that in the book, and you'll find out who were the early Scots and the Angles, and what the angle meant, what the word angle meant. It actually came again from an ancient Hebrew word that had to do with worship of the Taurus, or the sign of Taurus, or the bull. And why not? Because Jeroboam set up the calves of oxen, both in Dan and Beersheba, and said, just like Aaron had, these be thy gods, O Israel. Well, that's a long story, and I won't get into that part of it now. But let me just say that there is absolute evidence that the royal family of the British Empire of today are Jewish. And I have a chart right under my office that traces all the way back through Edward the Confessor and right on back into the earliest known and finally clear on to the Bible itself and ends up right with King David through the royal lineage of Great Britain. And that they are, in fact, Jewish. Many people don't seem to know that cousins and brothers of that royal family have sat on thrones as far away as Tsar Nicholas in Russia. That Hungarian kings and kings of Central European states have all been Jewish. And that those kings have not only reigned over some of the Israelitish nations, but also even some of the Gentile nations in recent history in the 17 and 1800s. It's a fascinating story. But there is going to be a king on a throne in England, I believe, who is going to be replaced at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, I think, to point out that had not the kings of England at the same time been the heads of the church, and had not the ancient clerics of England insisted that England lays claim to an older, more ancient brand of Christianity than that of Rome, we would not be free people today. England broke away from Rome, not merely as a recalcitrant or a rebel who was no longer willing to go along with the so-called primacy of the Pope, but because England laid claim to an earlier brand of Christianity, because many of the clerics at that time believed that the Apostle Paul came to England before the end of the first century A.D. They believed that he preached the gospel in the British Isles. And there are books and there is literature extant in England which tried to demonstrate this. And finally it became buried under German rationalism at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. But prior to that time there were many clerics in England that believed that the British people are a part of the lost ten tribes of Israel. And that's how that prayer, I think, found its way into the coronation ceremony. Remember, too, if you will, that the wars that the British Empire fought were against Catholic kings, that they were religious in nature as well as political and economic in nature, that Ferdinand of Spain, that Isabella, that other Spanish and French uh, kings and queens were Catholic. They were called the most Catholic and most holy Catholic majesty and so on in the days of the Armada that tried to subjugate England. And the British were actually fighting against a Catholic army as much as they were fighting against some kind of a political or a military force. It was religious in nature. If the kings of England had not absolutely insisted upon their own efficacy and their own spiritual roots of going clear back to the New Testament of the Bible and to the Apostle Paul himself, they would not have had the fervor they did in breaking away and insisting in all this time to stay broken away from Rome and from the Pope at Rome. And what do you think is at the root of the hatred the bombings and the murders in Northern Ireland, but the IRA and their claim to Ulster, the northern part of Ireland that has been occupied for all these years by Great Britain, and because it is Catholic versus Protestant. And why do you think Dan is left out of the promise of its share of 12,000 people to be sealed from the Great Tribulation in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation when you see the 144,000? 
If Dan is, as we think, partly Ireland today, and it says, as for Dan, he shall judge thy people. And I think about all the Irish policemen and of the, uh, the Irish judges and so on, and some of the past history of Ireland, and it does make me wonder because of that implacable hatred, and I still wonder to what extent it may be true that when the United States of Europe comes into being, just like the Irish who freely harbored Nazis, who were pro-Nazi and anti-British, and where there was a Nazi underground, a very viable, healthy Nazi underground in Ireland during World War II, that in the years yet ahead of us, Ireland may cooperate with the United States of Europe against her own brother, Great Britain. It's just fascinating to look into history, to look into the Bible and biblical prophecy, and to realize how some obscure portions of it may apply to some things happening in the world scene right now today. I want to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Romans in concluding. I won't read it all except that this is a chapter that shows because of Abraham's obedience and his great faith that he is called the father of the faithful and is an example to us all. And of course, we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, as it says in Galatians 3.19, if we are converted and members of God's church. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him it works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him it worketh not, but believes on him that justified the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, ergon, the Greek word meaning hard physical labor, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. The greatest definition of faith, I think, perhaps in the Bible, is right here in verse 21, regarding Abraham at age 90-something, when God said, you're going to have a son, and through him will come the seed and the progeny, and their throne, this kingly line, will never cease. It says in verse 21, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham, when he was about to sacrifice Isaac, must have thought, well, then God is going to give me another son. God is going to resurrect Isaac. But the amazing thing you see in that example is that not once did Abraham doubt God. God had promised. Now God told him to sacrifice the son. We would put it together differently. We would argue. We would say, well, how can you do that, God? But God, you promised. Well, how can I do that? That's my only son. I can never have another one. Abraham had a brand of faith a brand of confidence in Almighty God that he was convinced, very simple precept, God can do anything. And he just believed it right down to the ground. Just believed it right down to the ground. So when God said, you take Isaac and sacrifice him, it says, so Abraham saddled the donkey and put the firebrands on there and his son and started up the hill. Because Abraham mind, Abraham's mind worked in a different way than most people's minds work toward God. If it had not been for Abraham, believe it or not, I don't know how many people in the United States of America understand that at all, there never would have been a Great Britain or a United States of America. And if there had not been progeny of David sitting on the thrones of England, we would not be a free country today. Almighty God has planted us where we are. And the other nations of Israel, Zebulon, that I believe is Holland, and I think there is obvious inference, and there's a whole book that someone I've never heard of, never been in remote connection with this church, has written to actually prove that Zebulon and Holland are one and the same. There have been writers from clear back in the 16th and 17th century. There was a plethora of literature back at about the turn of the 19th century, where they were urging clerics all over England to accept the fact that England is Ephraim, and that these other nations of northwestern Europe are a part of the lost sheep of the ten tribes of Israel. It is nothing new. It did not begin with my father. It did not begin with J.H. Allen. It did not begin with a few people in the American Revolutionary War. It began centuries ago, and there have been people from the very earliest days who have always believed that the British and American people are Ephraim and Manasseh of biblical prophecy. Is 
Prince Charles going to usurp the throne? Is he going to become an autocrat? Is he going to try to take over the reins of government? Is he going then to do like Shebna did when he came to the wall and told Rabshakeh, don't speak in the Jewish tongue lest you disconcert all the people, but talk to me in the Syrian language so that you won't disturb the Jews. Is he going to be conciliatory? Is he going to sell Britain down the river to the United States of Europe? Is he going to be so corrupt that God, through Jesus Christ at his second coming, is going to yank him off a throne and replace him to inherit the throne of David his father? But the point is, the prophecy of Luke, the first chapter, that Christ is coming to inherit David's throne will be fulfilled probably in the lifetime of most of us right here in this room. <laughs>